Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So I want to look at a word that is used frequently, I hope, by Christians. It is the word glory. When I searched the word glory in an online Bible program, I simply typed it in and I discovered right away that at least in the authorized version of the Bible, the word glory occurs 619 times in the scriptures. And in this passage, this long sentence of Paul's extending from verse 3 down to verse 14 in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we find it three times. Let's find it here in verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. In every case, the apostles speaking of glory and praise in the same breath, and yet in three different contexts. We are to praise his glory for redeeming us. And we are to praise his glory in the outworking of that salvation in our lives. And then when we claim our inheritance in heaven, it will be to the praise of his glory. This Phrase the praise of his glory seems to encapsulate the whole Christian life. It covers our whole lifespan from our election in eternity past to our future in the new heaven and earth. Everything is to be done to the praise of his glory. And I thought that in itself That simple fact might warrant a Bible study on the subject. So what is glory? Well, the first thing that we learn about glory is that it's extremely difficult to define. It's a kind of an abstract concept, isn't it? In Hebrew, the word is kabod, and in Greek, doxa, simply like doxology. It literally could be translated as fame. If I tried to describe glory for you, I don't think I could. The Bible tells us a little bit about it. Glory is, first and foremost, a designation for God, a royal designation. Apparently, if you meet the king, I'm talking about King Charles. I don't suspect I ever will. If you meet him, You're expected to greet him as your majesty. And then you can revert to sir. Of course, those are not his names, sure they're not. You're just expected to do that to show that you're 
his humble servant. And the reason I think that I won't ever get invited to meet him is because they vet you ahead of your visit to make sure you're going to comply with that. And since I might have a few other things I might want to call him, that would be a little bit less polite. I don't think I'll ever get that privilege, if such it is. So your majesty or sir are simply designations of his royal status. In a sense, that's what God's glory is. Uh, if you look at Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, we read, For he, that is Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from him to him from the excellent glory. The excellent glory, a designation of God, the royal designation. It's not God's name, it's a form of address. It applies to all three persons of the Trinity. It applies to the Father in Ephesians 1 and 17, where the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is described as the Father of glory. It applies to the Son in James chapter 2 and verse 1, where James talks about us having the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And it applies to the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14, where again, Peter refers to Christ. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. So glory is a royal designation for God, the triune God. And glory is an attribute of God. I suppose it's a single word that describes for us just a little bit of what God is like. I suppose we could say it includes his majesty and his power and his holiness and his splendor and his greatness and much, much more than that. Here's a good definition from John Piper. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Manifold there means many. Think about how God's glory is expressed in the word. Psalm 24 and verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Ephesians 1 and 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So glory is a designation, a royal designation for the triune God. Glory is an attribute of God. Glory is the presence of God. God's presence is glorious. There was a song that I remember from years ago. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. I'm always worried of cliched songs and expressions like that. I'm worried 
about an excess of emotionalism or some kind of extra-biblical experience. In some circles, the idea of God's glory being the presence of God almost ascended into farce. I remember when I went to my first church in 1986, I was rummaging around in an old cupboard under the stairs. And I found some sheet music for that wonderful, doctrinally faithful hymn. I'm under the spout where the glory comes out. And a picture of a trombone in the front of it. You know, those things are extremes. But we should be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. God does presence himself among us. We know that he's present, not because we experience any personal revelation of it. We know he is present because God's word tells us that where his people meet together, he is there in their midst. We are experiential Calvinists. We are not unfeeling doctrinal robots. Biblical teaching, learning from God's word, excites us and motivates us and stimulates us to praise God. So the Bible tells us that God presences himself with his people. In Exodus chapter 13, the people of God are led by a cloud of by day and a pillar of fire by night, God's glory indicated by a cloud. In First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, tells us that it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. When Jesus was born, the Apostle John describes his coming into this world. He tells us that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When God comes to us in worship, there is glory. I think we as Reformed Christians need to be careful that we do not misunderstand that and that we do not neglect the fact of God's presence in our midst through his Holy Spirit when we meet together. And we should cry with the, with, the, with, with the prophet Isaiah to the Lord. We should cry, O Lord, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. So glory can be used in relation to the worship of the gathered church, meeting with the Lord's promised presence. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
So the glory of God is a designation, a royal designation of God's majesty, an attribute of God. It's the presence of God among his people. It's a revelation of God. It's the revelation of God in nature, first of all. It is God's greatness and power and majesty exhibited to all of mankind in all of the works that he has created. God revealing himself to every human being so that they will know that there is a creator and they will seek him and that they will be without excuse should they reject him. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And that includes the creation of mankind, made in God's own image, made to manifest his glory, made to live in his presence, to glorify God and to enjoy his presence forever. The revelation of God in nature is displaying his glory. And more so in Christ, who is God with us, and who at his birth the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. And in his resurrection, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, but that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. The glory of God is his divine revelation to mankind. For you and me, the glory of God is that motivating factor in our lives. We live our lives, our everyday lives, our family lives, our professional lives, our work lives, our leisure, our moral and ethical standards. Every aspect of the Christian life is lived for the glory of God. As we've already quoted, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. First Corinthians 10 and verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. I just learned this week that the composer Johann Sebastian Bach would sign his compositions at the end of every manuscript that he wrote with the letters SDG, Sola Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. Glory is a description of our future, our future home. I remember in my teenage years, our pastor would have to sometimes announce the death of a Christian believer, a loved one. And he would say, such a person has this week gone home to glory. After all, if glory can be used as a description of being in the presence of God here when God's people meet together, then surely the supreme experience of God's glory will be when we arrive in heaven, 
when we dwell forever in the new heaven and the new earth that God will recreate after this world has been burned up in the fire of God's judgment. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 10. Hebrews, rather, chapter 2 and verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's our future home and it's our future redemption. Remember that when Jesus came into this world to Bethlehem, he came as a baby in deep poverty and humility. But we know that when he returns, he will return in glory. Matthew 25 and 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. It's our future home and our future redemption and it's our future condition because on resurrection day we will be raised with new bodies like unto the resurrection body of Christ. First Corinthians 15, Paul tells us so is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And we've covered a lot of Bible references but We've literally only skimmed the surface. But before I finish, I want to just say one more thing. God's glory is perfectly expressed in his grace towards sinners. Because that's what we read in our verse in Ephesians. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. It's not a standalone verse. It's not even a sentence. We shouldn't have read it out of context. It's just a phrase and a much longer sentence. It's inseparable from the verses that precede it and those that follow it. Our studies in Hebrews that we have looked at over this past few weeks, Ham, so far, We've already seen that we have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. God, whose entire being is love. Eternal love, love eternally expressed in the three persons of the divine trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and Son love the Holy Spirit. Love that existed before the creation of the universe. And in that love, God moved to choose a people to be his people, a people whom he would redeem and elect and predestinate and bring out of enslavement to the devil and adopt into his family as adopted sons with all the rights and privileges and entitlements implied by that status. And he would do that in Christ, clothing them in the righteousness of his Son. The entire purpose of that, says Paul here, is to the praise of his glorious grace. God's glory is demonstrated to the highest degree in his grace towards sinners.
his unmerited favour. There will be no one in heaven without Jesus. There'll be no one there who'll be able to boast I did it my way. Or I got here on my own. Or I'm here because of my goodness. Or my charity. Or my helpfulness. Or my kindness. Or my humanitarianism. No one can say I deserve to be here. None of us are worthy. None of us are acceptable before God. We are sinners deserving only of condemnation. But God in his mercy sent his son to die for unworthy sinners, to take their place, to bear their punishment, so that they could be accepted in the beloved by God, made righteous before God by being in Christ. And he does it that way so that all the glory goes to him and none of it not one bit of it goes to us thank you for listening If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.